and a half later. All right, you chill out, Charisse. An hour and a half. It takes time for later. perfection, I think. I don't Anyways, think that's always true. It's been a minute. Um, I know that we've had some mediocre audio the last little bit, but hey. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Megan, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash Let's get into it. Yes, we apologize to everyone for the inconsistency. I think more than mediocre, the problem is that the audio changes every episode. Yeah, and we're not, I'm not really great at mixing. Neither of us are. No, and I don't really care to improve in that area of my life, to be honest with you. Why? Um, I, I think there are better ways to spend my energy in terms of like skill acquisition. That's such an interesting thing to say. You can't I've, I've possibly re- you can't possibly improve at everything that is out there to learn. But it's in your immediate vicinity. You do edit audio. You have to do it. So why not try to get a little bit better at it, or at least understand it? Ah, let me preface that. As of late, I've been somewhat bored. Just not with like not having things to do. Just bored with like life in general. Sure. Whatever it may be, like just you know, we talked about this like yeah. two weeks ago. So like. Things like this and tinkering. I think tinkering is a good way for me to alleviate boredom. I am not bored with my life. And yes, there I've, are things I about say, audio hold on, hold that on. I am curious about, but it doesn't include mixing. I actually came with a initial banter topic. Yeah. Was it about you starting a show that just rips me for 10 minutes at a time? It wasn't that. Oh, Therese, before now, this... Yes. As I was getting ready, she's like, oh, I should start a show where I interview all your colleagues and friends and we just make funny for 10 minutes. Each episode is a different person. And I would have like Eugene's wife on, former coworkers, current footy teammates. I actually think it would be extremely entertaining and obviously a very niche audience, but ultimately could be successful. I love I love getting made fun of. I think you would actually also enjoy it. Yeah. The reason why I like getting made fun of because I make fun of so many other people that maybe every couple of episodes you get to come on and give your like retort. You get to respond okay. to the previous episodes. Okay. I'm down with that. When I stumble across excess amounts of time, we'll kick this off. All right. Sounds good. Should we jump into it? Let's do it. What's your subject today, Eugene? All right. My topic this week is sort of a combination of a few things. It's called the future of NFT art. I just made that up, but I'll talk about some things that happened in the world of NFTs or just things that sort of relate to that. I don't Are know why you going to start so... with a definition of NFT? All right. So an NFT is a non-fungible token. So in the case of that, like fungible means that it's essentially replaceable. So a U.S. dollar is fungible because one U.S. dollar is the same, like has the same use case. 
but in a non-fungible sense, it's unique. So a trading card is considered non-fungible because there's a limited amount, there's scarcity tied to it. So a non-fungible token is a digital, in, in this case, is a digital token that is unique. And in the case of NFT artwork, it's tokenized artwork that cannot be replicated and it certifies ownership of the artwork. So yes, you could download this piece of artwork. You could take, you know, uh, you could download the JPEG or whatnot, but you don't own the artwork. So just like you can get a print of the, something from Van Gogh or Picasso, it's essentially worthless next to the real one or relative to the real one. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm on board. I think that in, in some ways, like NFTs are very much tied to the crypto space and it's not new per se, but I would say that in the last 12 months, they've started to pick up a lot of steam, just like at the time of this recording, Bitcoin's at like 23 grand, right? So I think that we're maybe turning the corner. This all ties back to something that happened on December 9th, where an artist known as Beeple dropped news of a new collection of artwork he was going to release. So for those unfamiliar with Beeple, myself included, I know- Same here. Had not heard of this artist prior to this conversation. Which is so interesting because he's not not popular. He's very popular. He's he like just, over a million is followers. not in our overlapping circles of interest somehow. But he is. Like I looked at some of his portfolio work. It's like, I think it's like Nike, LV and stuff. So he's like- Definitely in that space. I'm just living under I a mean, rock. There's so much knowledge out there. Things get through the cracks, right? Yeah. So people. Yeah. Otherwise known as Mike Winkleman is a graphic designer and artist from Charleston, South Carolina, whose main focus is on digital art. And he also does films. He's honestly a very approachable, like honest guy. Like he's, if you go to his website, his little blurb is, People is Mike Winkleman. He makes a variety of art crap across a variety of media. Some of it is okay, but a lot of it kind of blows ass. He's working on making it suck less every day. He's making it, he's <laughs> working, he's working on making it suck less every day though. So bear with them. Smiley face. So he's really honest and like, honestly, his work is amazing. So it's cool. kind of, you know, Look ironic. Yeah. To our listeners, because yeah. this is obviously an audio experience. Go look up people and take a look at his art. Yeah, a lot of it kind of, I mean, you would probably know the definition of, I don't know, futurism. I don't know anymore. Yeah, anyways, There's I'm really so many bad. Different I'm really bad with defining things by genre. Genres change, though. So that's part of the reason why it's so hard to put a definition on it. Yeah, but. In my opinion. So, so in this case, anyways, he dropped artwork and that came, he dropped a series of art pieces that came bundled with a physical token and. A premium box uh, and also included like a lock of hair for authenticity interesting yeah and uh he also dropped three open auctions with pieces available over five minutes so people were like bidding back and forth honestly in terms of the mechanism i wasn't that i didn't really understand it so i had to get it kind of like pieced together because i wasn't there to, to witness it and i think that uh, some other people went in and helped them kind of contextualize and make sense of it because you're looking at it right now too like does it seem clear like maybe the definitions are a little bit unclear so i think it's worth mentioning that you are referencing an article written by someone else who is not people but it's that explains space yeah. how how all this works and what happened and yes i'm looking at it right now and brow furrowed etc i cannot say i understand it and different platforms made it possible Sorry, like question mark, question mark, question mark. 
like people as an artist is not the person who created the mechanism in which this it yeah it wasn't like he distributed it himself he used he used uh what was it nifty gateway yes he used so nifty like, gateway that was with a question mark because i'm not even sure yeah but it is nifty Get gateway is the service yeah that helped him do this art auction and in short nifty gateway is basically a marketplace so uh continuing onwards upon purchasing it some of it was resold for up to upwards of tens of thousands of dollars in Pretty the crazy. end sorry USD. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. In the end, over $3.5 million worth of artwork was transacted in the primary market, so the first buyer. And then some of it was sold on the secondary market for at least you know $400,000 in transactions up until this point. So this is what I think is really interesting because I'm, I'm trying to come to terms with if and why like NFT art will be the next big thing as everyone says it is right because I, I i also very much question right now i mean it's not that it won't happen but right now i think that for nft art to be more valuable well actually yeah this this is you finish your train of thought first. I, I think that I'm, I'm running through several different thoughts right okay. now right number one is does the digital world and our lives in the digital world need to take over the real world for digital art to be more valuable right okay sure number sure, two sure, sure. does the nft really just serve as like an authentication mechanism because if you own it then like a certificate yes right okay. but i think there's perpetually been a challenge around linking the token the the digital token and a physical piece of work because you can always like separate the two and you could also you know forge the physical thing mm -hmm. but also it's like maybe they just need to be synced and i think that technology will probably solve that at some point but i think that's the one thing that's always been a bit of a challenge and they've also he's addressed this i was looking at some of the faqs and he talks about how like you know you could do whatever you want with it but i think that the greatest value is when they're intertwined mm. i also wonder how important provenance is unless it's at the highest level. What, what I mean by that is, if I'm buying like a $150 print from an artist, is it's not really worth forging, right? Mm -hmm. So in reality, NFTs are really just servicing the, the higher end of the, of the art market. Not to say that you don't care about authenticity, because if it's just built in as a function, then it's always there, right? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we, we personally aren't really like art collectors in that sense, yeah. but it's more about like understanding how art gains popularity yeah right and for me like this is something that that relates back to something i've talked about a lot is just that people is a great example of someone that's an amazing artist that neither of us had heard of before even mm -hmm. though he has he's been around for like 13 years right he's been playing his trade so two things come to mind it's like why haven't i heard of him which doesn't mean that he's not big it's more about like it's increasingly difficult for people to kind of discover things right and number two if someone like this and i'm only hearing about this after the fact i never really heard about it when i was like when this was happening or mm -hmm. when it was about to happen how big does something need to be for it to be known on a mainstream level one i don't think this necessarily needs to be known on a mainstream level because the way the physical art market works is not transparently 
you know, no knowledge to a general audience. I think I should probably preface that because I think that it's more about building popularity for an artist. Because I had this conversation also on Twitter. So it's like all the famous artists that exist, like the, the, let's call the Basquiat's, the, the Picasso's, right? What is the likelihood of those people existing, you know, in this day and age? going forward in a digital realm because it's actually quite hard for people to come across organically with certain artists and whatnot. Yeah. That whole discussion around what becomes popular today and does it need to become popular or do we, or are we relegated to a world of nicheisms? And what I mean by that is like, is like, I think your question about, you know, Basquiat's and the famous artists who make physical pieces of artwork Overlooks the fact oh, that there actually are- it's less about the physical element of it. It's more about them becoming popular because they're part of culture. Right, right. right. I understand. Yeah. I just mean that in this like a pre-NFT artwork age, when yeah. artists became famous for whatever their artwork is, okay. In yeah, just non this non-digital format, right? Um, I think you're not thinking about the fact that they're like countless countless artists out there who are small scale who yes. have very small audiences and this might just they be all exist outside money, yeah. of our purview and so you know what you're saying about nichesms i just think like that already exists like there's so much in the art world that is outside of what we know about and with people in this case it's interesting because it reached a scale that was interesting enough to become something general audience would want to read about yeah most likely linked to the fact that it generated like a lot of how money, much money like three and a half million yeah, yeah that's a lot of money right so that's most likely why it became circulated yeah i mean i think for me it's trying to come to terms because i think the, the world of nfts are things that I'm, I'm personally quite interested in everything is cyclical eugene had this huge crypto blockchain phase of his life where every week he wanted to talk about it and now we've we've come back to it well it's just more like i think there were not enough things that were happening to warn it and now there's so much yeah there's a decent amount but i i still think that the way to generate the most impact is if it becomes replacements for our real life tendencies right and i don't know if that's there yet i don't think that's the most interesting thing to me I mean, I think that is interesting, right? Like the replacement of what's happening in the non-NFT art world with NFT artwork. But what is interesting to me actually is Beeple was willing as an artist to experiment with NFT and consider how that makes his creative work more interesting. Yeah. And I think that opportunity for other people is also interesting to use nft or whatever related i don't even know like my imagination doesn't stretch that far whatever else is related to blockchain and crypto like is there an experimental application to art that hasn't been done yet and it's kind of like an open space right now right like there's enough knowledge and accessibility that the regular artist could consider it i mean the one thing that is now being built into this is that sharice the artist put something up as an NFT, Eugene buys it for $10 and then sells it for $35. You know, you could theoretically capture value from my sale to the second person. 
yeah. across the lifeline. So I think that sort of uh, sort of decentralized finance, like DeFi approach is pretty interesting. I mean, that's interesting to me in terms of, I guess we're talking about like art distribution and movement, but what I'm talking about is, does it change creation in some way of artwork? I don't know the answer to that necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I'm just very interested about the cultural impact of this. Does it make people want to create less or more? Does it allow people that maybe struggle to... Well, actually, let me walk it back because I do think that people that have created NFT-related products and assets have actually made money because I actually had a conversation with someone uh, this morning about it and it actually did have some impact. Like people were like able to tokenize something and make like 400 bucks off of it. Like you spoke to an artist who had done that. No, I spoke to someone who was working in the NFT space oh, um, around video games. I well, mean, that mean, that's I great, mean, at some right? Point, like we're talking, we, we talk about this a lot. Like how can small creators, how can independent makers support themselves? I want to will this into existence. So I'll just say it. I was like, when Macon does end up releasing its stuff in 2021, it's just going to be like, there'll probably be an NFT associated with it. it just comes for free with, if you buy something, then why not just have an NFT version? And like, maybe that NFT could be represented into a form where like, if you're playing XYZ game, then like, hey, you know what? You could put that into that space. I mean, I'm, it's not gonna be Animal Crossing because of the closed nature of it, but there are a lot of sort of decentralized games out there that would allow you an open, is it open source? It's more like the ability for you to like- No, put I hear you. Yeah. yeah. I love that you're just like speaking it into being. Well, I, I just feel like there's so much shit we talk about that that we're like working on, but it just happens like it's kind of in the pipeline, right? Because yeah. I think that's kind of this conversation I had today was in part because of that. Not necessarily because like my whole thing is to pivot making into this NFT type thing, but it's like, does it have some sort of element behind it? Well, I mean, yeah, that's the thing that's more interesting to both of us, right? You said cultural impact. I said, how does it affect the actual creation of artwork? You could say creation of a product, you know, does it change the nature of the actual thing you're creating when you consider NFT and not just like, is this a means? I mean, it's valuable just as a means for people to earn money. And just any way that, that allows is people to make money, I think is critical when it comes to creative things. Um, and then I guess a follow-up to this is also, it's funny because I had two calls that had something to do with crypto today, two different ones. But another one was I met this guy, Rolf, and he put me on to this thing called this thing called async art. It's a relatively new movement. And this is how they describe themselves. Async art is a new art movement built on the blockchain. Create, collect, and trade programmable art. Digital paintings split into layers, which you can use to affect the overall image. Art that can evolve over time, react to its owners, or follow a stock price is now all possible with programmable art. Launched in February 2020, there has been already 2.5 million in bid volume on the platform and over $600,000 in arts in artist sales. It's funny because like you always kind of need to pin it back to like a dollar amount to get people, I guess, have a frame of reference. Let's put it. But I sent you a video. I don't know if you watched it. I did not. So maybe watch it right now and you can just kind of get a, get a quick sort of overview of how it works. And then as, as Sharice pulls it up, I can kind of explain it. Basically, there are two things you can own. You can own either the master or a layer. So the master would encompass all the layers and the layer is obviously one part of the whole image. For collectors, Layers allow you to have exclusive control over the artist's work, and they also include special abilities decided by the artist. And for the artist, you can decide what parameters are available 
to the person that owns it within your art and grant exclusive control over any aspect that you give to the individual collectors. That's so interesting. So basically, I think the way you look at it is like, imagine if... Should I watch the video now? Yeah, you, should, yeah, you can watch okay. the video. We'll play a clip. The way I describe it... So the way I would describe it is, imagine you're customizing a character in a video game and your ability to swipe through and change the outfit. I mean, there is almost no better um, explanation than Photoshop. It is, yeah. Which I mean, is in layers, layers yeah. essentially. So it's like you can manipulate certain things about each layers or turn on and off different layers. Or you can just see the version where all of the layers are collectively on. Yeah. I think the most interesting thing to me is this collective ownership and modification. Mm -hmm. And Async talks about that quite a lot too, about the fact that it's programmable and different people can trigger changes to the artwork that you also see. Yeah. So remember like a while, while back, we talked about some kind of crypto art platform where you could collectively buy one piece of artwork. Yeah. I mean, right? it's so like cause, for example, like, like fractional ownership, Yeah, fractional yeah. ownership, like a thousand people could together own one cause, which at the time I was like, I don't know, like, is that compelling? But this is pretty compelling. Yeah, to it's me pretty cool, right? About shared ownership. I think let me let me also talk about a additional use case, which is pretty interesting to me, is that so Ralph, the guy put me on, he mentioned, wouldn't it be interesting if a billboard owner or the person that's leasing out the billboard takes this concept and basically sells individual parts of it? Sure. So like theoretically, uh, that's a really interesting advertising um, question. And also it's like proposition. What I also think is kind of fascinating is that crypto seems to like this opportunity for price discovery. So seeing what something's worth when you don't know and you don't have a, a sort of underlying value seeing for seeing what something's worth based off of many people determining what they think yes. the value is. Yes. In a market. So rather than you, you know, setting the price rather than a store owner saying this is 60 bucks yeah this is blank you know question mark question mark and then all of the consumers put forward what they think it's worth yeah so in reality like let's say someone owns that buys a layer they can then sell that layer to whoever is interested mm -hmm. as well and sell it on so i mean it's kind of an interesting i i, I think of the the NFT things, this is what I find most interesting because of the fact that digital art is digital and can be quote unquote programmable. Mm -hmm. It to me is far interesting than just leveraging ownership into art, right? Because ownership, I think it exists in the physical world and obviously in the online digital world. But this thing, like I obviously I suggest people go and check it out. It, it's just a very different way of looking at it. Yeah. It's and, beyond just ownership of a static thing. Yeah. I mean, ownership itself is also exciting because it opens up art collection to a larger group of people that might previously have been interested or able to do that. Yeah. But the fact that it's like you're saying this, what did you call it? Price discovery yeah. and collaborative I don't know if I can call it creation because it's not like you have total freedom, Yeah, but it is some kind of like yeah. art participation. Yeah. And if you haven't looked at it yet, one thing that's also interesting is that the layers themselves 
definitely look like art on their own. So don't feel like you're getting like a half baked idea because you only own because you only own one of seven layers. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's such an interesting it puts into thought into my mind like a different way of seeing art as well. Because yeah. you can't usually break down art into components. Yes, correct. You don't think about it as like 10 things that make up one thing. I, I would say like when I was trying to pick a topic today, like the NFT art thing, like I'm still trying to formulate my thoughts on it. But the async thing to me felt like the breath of fresh air I was looking for. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Not, not to obviously discount people, but this to me was like, oh shit, this is like the next generation art. Not, not I mean, I can just, understand yeah. why, because the Beeple auction is more similar to what's in the real world. Well, I mean, digital is real, too, so I don't say real, but yeah. the traditional yeah, yeah. art world system. That's a better way of putting it, yeah. But just transferred, the, the exchange of money is different, right? Yep. And the like value assignment is different. But then async is an actually different way of making and sharing art. Should we move on? Yeah, let's move on. Okay, so my subject this week is about the state of web today in 2020 versus the state of web in the year 2000, so 20 years ago. And this comes from two Medium articles written by Paul Ford, who is the CEO of Postlight, a digital product studio in New York. He's a writer and programmer consultant on content strategy and digital and editorial strategies. I can't remember where I came across his work, but it's been a long time, like a series of years that I've been following his writing. And it feels a little bit weird to roll out author credentials, but relevant to the subject is that he's been working in web a long time, which is ma what makes him able to write something that is about, you know, 20 years versus now. And he wrote this really short tongue-in-cheek medium piece titled Web Conversations with the Year 2000, which kind of made its rounds for programmers and people interested in that yeah. kind of thing. And it's a lot of inside jokes. Like when you read this first piece, you have to basically already know what the web was like in 2000 and what it's like now in 2020 in order to laugh. So for example, here's the opener of that short article. 2000 me. Wow, you still work on the web. That's amazing. It must be so easy to publish really interesting web pages. 2020 me. Um, very long pause. Look, you can pay a low monthly fee and listen to any album anyone ever made. You know, so it's like the joke is like it's a sidestep of the question being put forth. And then he followed up this joke article with a longer article called web conversations from the other side, which is more serious and explanatory. And it still covers, uh, it covers a lot of inside stuff that I won't go into detail about because it's about like actual programming talk, HTML, XML, two-way linking. So if you as a listener are interested in that, you can go read the full article. It gets nitty gritty for technical stuff. But what's important in this article is how the progression of technical web work has resulted in the way we interact with each other and what we use and what's available on the web. I'm gonna read the opener of that piece as well. He writes, 
Anything you could do 20 years ago, you can do today and you can do much, much more. It's cheaper, faster, and just all around better than it used to be. But it's also far more complicated. And as always, it's how people push against constraints that makes things interesting. So the overall interestingness has gone down while the potential has increased. And then he talks about how the focus of web has changed in the sense that like we thought maybe 20 years ago that mass audiences would go to the web for one thing to like make their own tools to make their own web pages but actually they mainly wanted to have live conversations and listen to music and play games Mm -hmm. which resulted in like a different prioritization when it came to building the web Mm -hmm. so at this moment i'm going to do a little bit of a digression which is to say that i i feel like i've talked about this on an episode but i'm going to mention again when I was in art school, I started off thinking I was going to go into print design. So like the design of books and magazines and other printed Matter. Writ- written material. And there were a couple of required web design classes that I had very low expectations for. But then I just wound up weirdly, really enjoying. Yes. Weirdly both really enjoying i say weirdly because i just didn't expect it myself like i really enjoyed it and i was better at it than my peers and i say that not because i was like amazing but just better at it than my peers what does better at it mean i was much quicker than my classmates at understanding how to code and being able to code functional things at this point in time when i was in university from 2008 to 2012 for people's reference. And I think the interesting thing for me at that time, even though like Paul Ford writes about the year 2000, it was still the same interesting thing for me in 2008. And I really should shout out two of my um, web teachers who were Erwin Chen and Jamie Kasoa, who still work in web today, which I think is also very interesting. And they made it exciting, the possibility of each of us making our own weird tools in places on the internet and that you could make this thing that was like from scratch just yours and you could put it out there and then other people who had that like very specific interest or use case would also be able to use it and yeah we've talked about this before in terms of how the whole web has just become so vanilla and so basically placed in these neat little cmss yeah 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 yeah. and that's like what why i well, one is just this, I agree with a lot of Paul Ford has written about, and he puts it in a way that's, you know, nicely encapsulated when he says like, overall interestingness has gone down, but potential has increased, which I agree with, you know, like what you're saying, you know, it's vanilla, it's kind of bland, but it's way more accessible. It's way more affordable. There's not like a barrier to entry, but at the same time, we've given up like all of the interestingness. Yeah, that could have been. I mean, tech has essentially forced us to prioritize convenience and speed. Or maybe it's not forced us. It's created the mindset that it's what you should see. But the thing is that Ford goes into this, too. I don't really think that tech forced us to do it. In some ways, it's actually what people wanted, you know, and he has this other. You want to say something? Well, I, I think that. Why do we seek convenience so much? And like we've talked about this before. Yeah, late, of course. The old, the old late stage capitalism. Yeah, yeah. Having the luxury. Dude, remember when right? we used to just talk about that for like 
five episodes straight. But anyways, I mean, there's phases to this entire podcast, right? So he says this about independent forums being dead, like that we just congregate on Reddit and social media platforms, etc. And this is a quote from him. He says, I cannot overemphasize how much the lesson of the web is that people given the choice between the freedom of operating and managing their own platform and running a centralized platform that they do not control will choose the centralized platform. The desire of regular people, people with things to do, to also become systems administrators is far less than what we assumed it would be. Which is what you were saying. You know, most people do not have the luxury of being interested in managing their own thing and creating and managing but also it's like a matter of having the educational like the educational foundation right like you took a class to code sure right and i think that's not necessarily part of our everyday learnings which had it been let's say hypothetically you had that had been prioritized perhaps potentially that would have changed the trajectory albeit i think it's a big ask to put in the hands of the education system do you know what i mean yes I mean, I think there's a lot of ways in which the education system could be better. And it's not just about, you know, teaching coding as a technical skill, like the way we teach math, but it's also about the value of the web being positioned differently, you know, like not the value of the web being entertainment, but the value of the web being places where you can make specific tools for yourself, what you want, and then also form communities around those tools and the purposes that they have. And I don't think most people think of the web in that way, like that being the value that they can get from it. I I agree. Like it's super hard because most people don't have the brain space to care about the web being that way. And it's, um, it feels like work as well. And not everyone is geared to want to, you know, like at the very top of this podcast, you were talking about tinkering with audio mixing. And to other people, that sounds like, why would I use my free time doing work? I think another thing I wanted to dwell on that I find important and is related to what we've talking about is Paul says, uh, programmers find labor relaxing or a specific type of person finds labor relaxing. For example, he says, you know, I found it relaxing to write this, even though maybe 150 people will read it. And the reward for doing good work is more work, but most human beings find labor laborious. Most people don't have obsessions with boring, abstract things. They don't get the chance and they don't have lots of time they can use to write for three, for free. Which I like, I read this and I thought of you because you are also that type of person where I think you find interest in doing things that most other people would consider laborious. Yes, for sure. 100%. Like looking at a spreadsheet and trying to understand it or I don't know. I just, I think my, my lifelong interest and like inspiration has just been learning shit that I don't know if it has any immediate kickback. It's just by virtue of like keeping myself interested and stimulated. Like, I think it's just like, I know. I mean, when we first started this conversation, I was like, I keep trying to think like, dude, like I'm always so concerned about the future for some reason. Mm. Right. Like, what am I going to do? What's going to happen around our world to our world, et cetera. So, but I, 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 I sometimes like fail to 
like everything that this guy said is basically what I wish more people would adopt in terms of doing things that are not glamorous. They're just like, but they actually serve some sort of underlying value, both to you personally and maybe to the outside world. Yeah, but they don't, you know? And so- I mean, immediately they don't, but I think at some way, but I think in some ways, like it finds its way back. Well, I guess what I want to, and he, you know, this article doesn't go into that, but I bet he has thoughts on it, is that the role that tech does have is that it could nudge people in that direction if it wanted to, but it doesn't. Mm -hmm. It's like, like people came to the web and they expressed like this sort of mass audience expressed enough interest that then tech platforms went with that interest. Okay. And doubled down on what people wanted to do, but they could impose something alternative that I don't, it's hard to say this because basically what I'm saying is that companies could, it doesn't have to be companies, but the people in charge of the internet could impose this ideal version of how things would work. And then people would eventually do that. Yeah. Except that's like imposing someone's will on everyone else. Which in some ways you could say is already happening. I would say that in general, the internet went down the road that it did because of its ability to be a, a great way to make money, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's why e-com basically took over the internet, mm-hmm. right? Advertising went down this dark path because it was so easy to serve ads. So as a delivery mechanism, as, as a vector for certain things, that's kind of why we're, we are where we are. In my opinion, it's why we've lost that quirkiness. Yeah, I don't disagree. I just think about, you know, where could things go? And I think in light of what you just said, there would have to be an economic sacrifice. There'd have to be a decision that, you know, for this, for a period of time, for a phase of time where we want the Internet to look different as a whole, we are going to give up the ways that we currently make the most money. Yeah. And on the internet. This actually has something to do with something I brought up with you when we were brainstorming our topics. David Rudnick is someone I brought up to you. And yeah, you're yeah. like, oh yeah, this is like an artist, graphic designer, right? And I shared a tweet in the Discord that talked about how he had been less inspired to share work because wherever he shared it basically compressed it and made it look like shit. Yeah, I saw that. And basically his whole argument was that I'm not inspired to share my work because it's not the best representation. And what he also said that was really illuminating was that it's not fair to like this next crop of creatives because it doesn't show their work in the best light. And I personally had the chance to also have this offline world that I could share work that was seen as it was supposed to be seen. And I do recall I had a bunch of posters that were under my couch and I like I had them for probably like almost, you know, seven, eight years. And when I rolled them, I was like, oh, these are pretty nice. But the experience after I had them framed actually was even more heightened. And I think that's actually a really interesting way of looking at the way this whole sort of like our world plays out. And it actually relates back to what we talked about earlier, because that's why for me, I've until I saw this acing thing, I'd never really had that same experience with digital art. Mind mm-hmm. you, I think there are things in the digital art world that could be interesting going forward, especially like some sort of motion or movement and that, that becomes part of the digital art thing that obviously you cannot really do 
in the same way. You could, you know, there's some there's some different things you could do, but for the most part, that is what's exciting to me. Maybe NFTs are the way that we reinvigorate the internet. Yeah. I mean, maybe. I think things, it doesn't have to be NFT specifically, but I think things like NFT, which are a big enough shift in technology in the ways things operate could do it i just i think i'm sad that you know we gave up a lot of you call it quirkiness which i like quirkiness and weirdness and also just the ability to customize or make the internet look the way we wanted to yeah outside of a cms and again, referencing my personal life, like my undergraduate final project, I was a website from scratch. As in, I made, I built yeah. every part of that website, which I no longer have the skills to do, by yeah. the way. Um, but it was like a common thing too. That people just could create total, not like different versions of Squarespace websites, but something totally in their own character. Yeah. And I, I think it's sad that we lost that. I would love to see um, big companies or programmers or, like you said, rise of NFT that could jolt the internet into a different place. That's it for me. Good place to wrap things up. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via Patreon.com slash Macon. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>